here's the thing, and this is this is where we kind of and we'll probably um, touch on it today. If you gave every human being the opportunity of golf, there's a fixed percentage, and it wouldn't have changed in the last 600 years, for whom it will be a lifetime pursuit. And one or both of your boys might be them. Right. Now, if they're never introduced to it, you never know. But that's kind of the whole, you know, that's the that that is the thing about golf. You know, the, the appeal of the game hasn't changed ever. It's the same appeal for the same number of people as it's always been. Which is, you've got to be able to introduce people to it. So it touches beautifully on what you're wanting to talk about today with public golf and and the importance of. It. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Blind Shots Podcast. I'm your host, David Hill, coming to you as always from beautiful Lexington, Kentucky. This is episode 21. Today we're going to be talking about public golf. Actually, today and many days hereafter, I hope to bring you a symposium of sorts. Episodes one at a time from a diverse group of stakeholders, commenters, and would-be problem solvers. Over the course of the series, the idea is to talk through this notion I have that public golf, meaning community-owned golf, be it a municipality-owned course, a state park golf course, or a national park or military-based golf facility, that they all have a rightful place within the golf landscape. The working theory is that beyond just a right to exist, public golf needs an advocate to help sell the ideas of innovative golf programs, the benefits of community golf to educate decision makers on the benefits of golf courses as green space and stormwater runoff sin eaters. In the recent pre-COVID days, public golf, the right of government-owned golf courses to even exist, was under threat from multiple sides. Urban and suburban land prices were skyrocketing, putting pressure on the very right of golf courses to exist. Upside down city and state budgets, a perception of exclusionary practices, and until recently, a declining participation rate that left golf looking a lot more like 1989 instead of 2019 were just a few of the ways, uh, some of the important foes that really threatened public golf around the world. The battles were local, as they always are, but string enough of the battles together and one quickly realizes it's become a war. It's not just attrition. Most times, it certainly doesn't feel like a fair fight. And I wonder, can the lessons of successful and significant movements like the National Links Trust, the Save Muni movement in Austin, be harvested and scaled up so that golf communities worth, savings don't, worth saving don't ever reach the edge of elimination? That central thesis brings me to my guest today. Rod Morey is an award-winning Australian golf journalist with more than 20 years' experience. He's covered everything from major tournaments to junior golf at the local level, beginning his life in media as a daily news reporter for the News Limited in Sydney, and he now writes a column for Golf Australia amongst his uh, many other interests and duties. He is one of the godfathers of the golf podcasting game, beginning his burgeoning podcast empire with State of the Game, a show you've heard me talk about here, which he has parlayed into the Talking Golf Network of Shows of which the Blind Shots podcast is a proud member. One consistent theme across Rod's shows are the various golf causes that he advocates for through his commentary and his interviews, including the role and fate of public golf, particularly in Australia. 
there is a spectacular fight going on right now in Australia over that nation's Moore Park golf course. And it brings many of these issues to a head on which Rod has many thoughts. In which he has curated these thoughts with his regular co-host Adrian Logue on the Good Good Golf Podcast, as well as in discussions with Michael Clayton and Jeff Shackelford, his co-hosts on the aforementioned State of the Game podcast. Though the topic is nom- nominally a serious one, you know, Rod is a wonderful conversationalist, and I felt better having listened to him and having absorbed his perspective and having him to bounce ideas off of. No great mysteries were solved in this initial episode of the public golf talks, but it was as enjoyable a conversation about golf as I've had in weeks. I hope you find the discussion engaging, or at least mildly entertaining. Who knows? Maybe you have the crazy idea that might assuage my worries about the entire thing. In any case, here's the man responsible for me having a podcast at all, Mr. Rod Morey. So that was fun. But yeah, I know this is a a cause you and you and Adrian speak about quite a bit on the show. Uh, you even more so uh, with some of the other shows. And so I, I wanted to get your perspective. Uh, and I wanted to get what's happening in Australia because you it seems like, you know, COVID, the golf boom here. And I'll touch on this a little bit formally has kind of stayed a lot of the pressure that public golf was under. Yep. It sounds like from some of the stuff you guys have been talking about on the shows that that may not be the case uh, in Australia, and so I don't want I don't want to be the alarmist, uh, saying there's no advocate. The whole point of this, the, the big picture, is to use these conversations to whittle down, you know, d- what a public golf advocate may look like, mm. and what its need right. is, because yeah. um, golf has plenty of advocates. Of, of self-interest advocates, um, and, but I want to kind of flesh that out. Why it's it won't be the USGA? Why it won't be the you know some of Can those things? Just, yeah. But, well, a part of the problem we'll, we'll no doubt talk about this. To me, a big part of the problem is well, golf is a victim of its own success in some ways. We have our own media, and we in golf talk about it a lot. Not a single non-golfer gets exposed to any of that. The conversation actually needs to happen outside of golf, and it's golfers who need to do it, but that's where the problem is. It's an internal conversation, which is having no impact in the areas where it needs to have an impact. And there's a real, you know, I get people sending me messages on Twitter, and they say, oh, I love the piece you wrote about this and that, and we really appreciate it, and that's fantastic. I'm not being negative, but it's ultimately somewhat useless because those those are the, not the people who need to read it. You know, the people who need to read it are outside of golf, and they're not buying Golf Australia magazine or reading the Golf Australia magazine website or listening to Good Good or State of the Game. They're not doing any of those things because they're not golfers. And so uh, we feel like, and I think it's been a, I think that's been a problem for golf for a long time. A lot of the hand wringing that we do, you know, all these um, great concepts that the USGA come up with, you know, nine holes and forward tees and all these sorts of things, we're preaching to the converted. And none of them will help to to grow the game because you're not talking to the people who don't play. Um, you, you could be an administrator in golf and do a thousand interviews in your lifetime and never once speak to a journal who wasn't a golf writer. That's quite possible. That media and press side of it, 
might be a different angle that people don't think about. I do think about it uh, quite a bit. It's, <clears throat> but that might be one angle of it. If you look at the press coverage of, well, certainly here in Australia, it's lazy in the sense that there's clearly no understanding of or interest in golf in the newsroom, and that's okay. And you wouldn't say the reporting's biased, but it always leans into the man bites dog territory. Right. You know, rich golf clubs to cut down trees. It's easy. It's easy. I mean, I did it for years. I was a tabloid journal. It's not that hard. Scion of wealthy family embarrasses himself at local golf club. People love reading about it because, you know, it's all of that. Particularly in Australia, we love to poke them in the eye. <laughs> now, public golf, somewhat, that bleeds over into public golf. People in, in Australia don't know the difference between Royal Sydney and Moore Park or Mangrove Mountain, Michael, and the difference between the demographics of people who are right. using those facilities. You know, the guys I played golf with most of my life, uh, certainly as a member up at Mangrove, are mechanics and farmers, and, you know, um, panel beaters and butchers and carpenters, and there's no lawyers and accountants <laughs> stockbrokers there's none there's a lot of those people play golf at royal sydney in the australian but that's not my golf world it's not the golf world of most but from the outside people believe that that is golf well and that's that's part of what i want to speak to you about is just how we got here you know i i don't know if australia's public golf history is similar to the u.s or not golf in this country came over it was elite Okay, the only people that could afford to build the golf courses were the wealthy elite. And for the first couple of decades, there weren't a lot of golf clubs, and you were only you had to be a member somewhere. Um, so what what about everybody else? Well, you know, the Roaring Twenties, people are making money. Uh, the municipalities step in, you know, to give everybody else a chance. They were the only people that had enough money to build a course. Uh, Thomas talks about it in his book, in his golf course architecture in America. Is it, God bless those poor souls playing on these awful Spartan golf courses that the city or the county built for them. But, hey, you know what? They're out there. They're playing golf. Uh, in, in my town, in Lexington, the first golf course that wasn't a Lexington Country Club or Idlehour Country Club, a very private institution, was from – like 50 acres donated from a wealthy horse owner. He just did it out of civic pride or responsibility or whatever, and that became a nine-hole and then became an 18-hole course, and it still exists today. It's about a mile from my house. I love it. Um, but there was, it, was it golf a big part of the New Deal, golf construction, in that post-World War One. Once you get into the Depression, it was a, you know, and that's one of the things that we've lost, the Parks and Recreation, there's a, a department or a division or commission of every city and every county and every state, and that recreation side has come to mean something different, or golf has gotten, because it has a private counterpart, has not become part of that mission. It's not a soccer field. It's not a softball field. Um, but yes, to your point, during World War II, yes, the, the architects that no longer had as many wealthy clients to do work for, to build for... Um, yeah, the public works projects, um, they weren't, you know, they weren't Spartan, but they weren't, those are not the courses that we still play. That's not Torrey Pines, you know, the the, the marquee public courses. Um, you know, pro, post-World War II, we've got mechanization, we've got automation, so it became, I don't know if it became cheaper, 
Um, but it became different. It became bigger scale. And you had then you, you know boom and bust, urban decay, Rust Belt people moving out to the suburbs, white flight after integration in the civil rights era. So all of a sudden the the Gulf could follow that boom and bust, but all of a sudden you had a few less people paying their tax dollars to go towards municipal golf. Um, then you had the rise of real estate golf. You know, maybe not country club, maybe daily fee privately owned golf to come in and compete in that space. This is these aren't the blue blood clubs, um, but they are. One of the things people see, I think, is golf is unique in the public space because it has an apples to apples private counterpart. So why, you know, I get this a lot so from skeptics, people. Well, why should the city be in the golf business? It's a city. You know, they they can have parks, but why should they be losing money on a golf course when, you know, John Citizen over here is trying to be entrepreneurial and try to contribute to the city coffers with his private uh, enterprise? And I think that's a a quick synopsis of what public golf has been. Now, that's a a very, very small um, episode. So... What has Australia, I guess, what does their history look like by comparison in the public golf space? Yeah, well, I think, well, certainly culturally golf is different in America to almost all other places in the world. I think we're probably somewhat closer to the UK model here in Australia, simply because of the immigration patterns. And and we're a very different sort of a a nation, a society. We're probably um, closer to that European model than America from my limited observations and, and knowledge of things. So... Golf predominantly in Australia is built on a membership model, not so much a country club. We have quite modest facilities here in Australia, which are semi-private. They're open at sometimes for public tea times, but there is a membership base, which essentially covers the cost of the maintenance of the club. And then alongside that, certainly not everywhere, small country towns outside the big urban areas, definitely, almost every one of those towns will have a publicly owned golf facility. Um, as one of the offerings for the community. Sport, people need access to sport, all sports. And to go down a rabbit hole, one of the points I always try to make is golf is not more important than football or netball or hockey or tennis, but it's not less important either. And there's a real, certainly in this current debate here in Australia, and certainly here in Sydney, so let's back up. In Sydney, we have an eight-in-hole golf course called Moore Park. It's 15 minutes from the CBD of Sydney, which is one of the most stunning cities in the world, as you know. Uh, It's one of the busiest golf courses in the country. It's a publicly owned facility, and it sits next to a large parkland. Think Bethpage State Park, New York. Not that big. Large, open, green space. Development has been going on in the precincts near Moore Park for years. Towers, big residential towers, lots and lots and lots of people, and that is set to continue. And None of those towers, in none of that development process has anybody said you need to account for green space for these people that you're adding so we find ourselves in a position now where the lord mayor of sydney looks at the moore park golf course and says well look we've got more people than ever living in that precinct they've only got this limited green space at centennial park we want to cut moore park golf course in half take away nine holes make those nine holes open publicly accessible free to roam green space uh, because people need it and so, which I mean, frankly, common sense tells you that there's an element of unfairness to that. Yeah, why wasn't there? Anyway, but that's the situation we're in. So now golf is 
whether you agree that golf is in a position where it needs to justify its existence. So financially, Moore Park doesn't have a problem. It contributes $4 million a year to the state government. That's how much money they make out of a driving range. So they, they do their part in terms of finance. None of the parks return that cash. So I, I would put that in a, a, a pro column for Moore Park golf course. That's what and it, Just by comparison, so many courses here run a deficit. I mean, running they're truly subsidized. So that is, that is most Australia. More park is unusual in that. Okay. More public facilities in Australia run at a loss than uh, at a profit. And I think there are reasons for that. Uh, one of them being a lack of golf knowledge among those who are tasked with running those facilities. They tend to be people in a government department who may or may not have any interest in golf, may never have played golf. And as, as golfers know, the last thing you would put in charge of a golf course is someone who didn't know anything about golf because, yeah, it's a, it's a unique and multifaceted game. So, right. And it is, is expensive. So back to Moore Park. So the expense argument doesn't hold up, but it is a legitimate question, I think, that Clover Moore asks. We are now in a situation where all these people are in this place and people need access to green space for mental health and all those other things. It's now up to golf to make the case why it deserves to continue to occupy the amount of green space that it does. I think Moore Park can make that case. And there's a bunch of points that I think are are um, that you could make for all public golf facilities – uh, and along these lines, if we accept that sport is important and that there should be some publicly funded support for all sports, the truth of most sports is that the playing facilities are really only for those aged between realistically 8 to 10 and up to mid-30s. People play football in those kind of years, soccer. Once you pass your mid-30s, most sports are a thing of the past for most people. Golf is one of the few for whom that's not the case. I'm not saying that for you. We know there are 50-year-olds who play tennis, but but in reality, a football field will be used demographically by people aged between about the age of 8 to 10 and 35 to 40. That, that's it. And predominantly by boys. That's changing, but predominantly most sporting facilities, particularly football fields, used by boys. Golf is the complete opposite, in fact. Golf is the one sport where people come from the age of five, six, seven, your own boys now started to play ones, five, ones, two. There's every chance that when you're in your dotage and can barely walk, you'll still be playing golf with your son. And he will play right up into his. So golf has something to offer there that other sports don't. Eight-year-olds and 50-year-olds don't play tennis together. They can't. They don't play soccer, hockey, netball. There are very few sports that that age range can cover. And yet it's actually not uncommon to see eight-year-olds playing with 50-year-olds at golf. It's not common, but it's not uncommon. And we could, in fact, encourage a whole lot more of it. Oh, the, the guys in my league, they have a couple of them that just bring their grandkids regularly. And have they may, be, they may be carrying an iPad with them, but you know what? They're out there with Grandpa on the course getting some fresh air uh, and getting some exercise. Oh, that on a tennis court. <laughs> See how it goes. Yeah. So I think golf has that to recommend it. Aside from all the other things that we know about, golf has a lot of things to recommend it at a you know, personal growth level if you choose to engage at the game that way. So I think golf needs to make some of those cases. From the outside, people look at golf and they think it is, we know this, they think it's a sport for wealthy, elite people, for a minority of people. And it's an image that we don't do enough to try to counter. That, I think, 
is the that, that's the media question. What do we in the golf media do to try to correct that image beyond golf? It's an easy sell for governments to say, we want to close the golf course and make it a park. We know that it's only a small percentage of the actual population plays golf. And so for the majority of the rest, they're either indifferent, they don't care, or they actually hate the game because what they know of it has been exclusive. They've had a bad experience. They knew someone who was a golfer who they didn't like. Uh, and so golf's image really is probably its biggest problem. And that's why it's an easy sell. There was a golf course here in Sydney. It wasn't much of a golf course, but it was a public golf course. And they just the council just announced on their website one day the golf course is going to close in three months' time, and three months later it was gone. And that was that. If you tried to do that with a library or a swimming pool or a soccer field or a tennis court, my expectation is people would have been protesting and writing letters to the council, but nobody did because golf has an image. Well, close the golf course. What do we care? It's only for the rich people anyway. They'll go play somewhere else. Now, see, that, that anecdote is interesting because here we've had that experience where every budget cycle – the council looks at, you know, we've been on belt tightening for maybe since the dot-com bubble burst. Um, but regardless, they look, we have five public golf courses here in Lexington, in our county. And the county proper is probably roughly 300,000 people, okay? So it's a mid-sized, smallish city. Um, and so they'll look at the budget and they'll see that, uh, oh, that one, that little par three course is losing money, and it's lost money every year for the last 10 years. We're going to close it down. Well, you know who plays at that par three golf course? Senior citizens and the grandkids, religiously. They're the ones that keep it open. There aren't competitive golfers going over there. I've played Meadowbrook maybe twice in the last 10 years. But they will, here's what happens. So that comes out in the paper that they're looking at closing that golf course. And... The the older set who people know vote that, that those are the reliable voters in this country are the older generations. Of course, you, your vote your voting is not compulsory, is it? See, vote, voting is compulsory in Australia. If you no. don't vote at an election, you get fined. That's how it works. <laughs> no, no, not in America. That, that's, yeah, that's that right. we're we're a freedom loving people, right? Even if yeah, we yeah. Do, even if we don't want to take advantage of it, by God, we're going to have it. So the old, free to shoot yourselves in the foot. Oh, you have no idea how little our how little our voting matches our personal self interest. But that's a whole other podcast. That is a whole other family of podcast. But the the older golfers all descend upon their council people and shake their angry fist and say, "If you do this, I will support whoever runs against you." Or they just gripe to them and say, "When I see you in church, we're going to have a further conversation about this." Um, because it's all local, very local, and it gets saved miraculously. They, they may be, they may idle it for a little while, but that thing gets saved, and it still remains a course. So should it? But should it, Dave? So here's here's the interesting question. I would not make the case that every golf course deserves to just remain in existence because it's a golf course, and that's very tempting as a golfer to say, well, every golf course matters and should be kept. I don't know that that's necessarily the case, which is very different to saying I think some golf courses should be closed. Right. Generally speaking, uh, golf courses that lose money do so for the most part because they're not well run, and that generally in the public golf space comes back to a problem with those who are running it. Many of the public golf courses in Australia will have that the council will lease out the operation of mm -hmm. a golf course to a private operator. Now, a private operator has no incentive to invest anything in that facility 
it's a completely take arrangement. It costs them, let's say, 50000 a year, if, and they're going to put me back in there. If that lease is long enough, they do. And that's the American model. I've got friends that, that are – one of the guys I had on a, a podcast, the, the Blind Shot episode, he is the operator of a publicly owned right. golf course. Right. And he – you get a long enough lease, and these professional management companies come in, and they want a long enough lease – that they can justify because they know what it takes to make the money. They don't, right. they, you know, Billy Casper Golf and Kemper Sports and those outfits are not coming in here to get by by the skin of their teeth and just live on some consultant fee. They know that if they, to make money, they've got to spend a little money on that course to, you know, it may not be architectural significance, but they may need to put lights on a driving range, a couple hundred thousand dollars. They may need to upgrade the entire cart fleet. You know, oh, a, a new well, lease yeah. there. Things like not that. hard to spend money at a golf course, Dave. <laughs> Pick right. an area, you can spend almost bottomless pits of money on it. So that seems like a different. And it is different. Yeah. And and I've got no qualms with the the private operation leasing out the space. But I, I tend to think that you get into some perverse incentives there, like you're talking about, though, where it's more of a it you're making something that is, I think, supposed to be a community asset. Mm-hmm. And turning it into just another business, mm-hmm. you know, you're taking it's not pub, it's something slightly different than true public golf at that point. Do other sports in the states? How do they run in terms of municipal support for various sports? Are there any correlations? Is golf getting a bad deal from the publicly funded sector? Yes and no. Okay, ba- take baseball for instance. Baseball fields take up a fair bit of space. Okay, mm-hmm. it's a town our size, or even a town much smaller, say a town of around a hundred thousand people. You're going to have four or five different youth programs, different little league operations within that town, within that geographic space, and they're all going to play their baseball at municipal parks but it's not the city parks department running it so your the city's commitment there is basically to facilities management and it's facilities that you have to maintain much less. I mean you've got to keep rocks out of the dirt the grass is going to be mostly clover in the outfield uh, you know it's seagrass mow grass maybe put some weed killer down the budgetary commitment, they may lose money, and it may be more on a percentage basis, but, but the nominal number is so much smaller than a year's worth of golf course maintenance. But as a concept, we accept that the, the local government has a responsibility to make available facilities for people to play sport and, recreate, and, and to recreate in. We accept that. They do because it's a market inefficiency. There's no... Those baseball leagues are not for profit. Unless you have a, a wealthy benefactor, it's a a but for the, the municipality doing it, there would be no baseball fields. And people get hung up. You know, the, the okay, maybe the good citizens could get together and privately, you know, bake enough cookies to build a baseball field. That stuff happens all the time. That's how you save the lights or, or save the, the press box. It's not a long-term plan, though, is it? Right. <laughs> it's, it's not. It's, it's whereas golf has 
that they see that there are privately funded golf courses. They see the country club. They see golf on TV. At, you know, they see Augusta. Uh, that there's no. So 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 under that as a concept, and so what you're putting there, and I agree with you that it's 100 percent right. But what you're essentially saying is, we are saying golf should only be for the rich. If you want to play golf, you have to go and consume it privately. There's no responsibility no, I, I, I to think, offer an opportunity for golf. I think that's what the criticism is, because, like you said, people have the theory, have the, they think that everybody that plays golf is rich. I, but you, nights <laughs> like you, right? In the era of COVID, we're we're just knocking it right out of the park. There, golf is, and I think the general public would. Even my mom. I think I could explain this to my mom in 30 seconds. That there's the super high end, mm-hmm. and there's the the super low end. And you know that's a lot of private. There's some private operators that are seagrass, mowgrass operations. Just like in the private market, though, and the public market is like that too. You've got your Pebble Beaches and your Beth, pa- or not Pebble Beach, but Chambers Bay, Torrey Pines, Beth Page Black, and then you've got these places that could you could plant crops on them within a week's time but that middle for people for your tradesmen for your people that aren't wealthy uh, but can't they're rich enough to play golf but they're not rich enough to join a golf club that's where the pressure is Mm -hmm. that's what those are the courses in a lot of places that the cities uh, i think the the cities support those are the ones people have the problem with they may not in the bad part of town okay go yeah the the poor people can keep that golf course. We're not going to do anything with it anyway. The, the land prices haven't gotten high enough to where that's a problem for anybody. Um, so I, I don't think golf has to justify its existence to non-wealthy people. I just think it, it has qualities that make it unique and that sort of pervert the perception of it. Like a hairball, isn't it? Every time you pull a hair here, there's an unintended consequence. Sort exactly. of over there. It, it, you've touched on something there that I think is really important that golfers need to keep in mind. This is not a discussion that's ever going to end. This, this, as populations grow and cities get bigger, competition for space increases. We're only going to see more and more and more pressure on urban golf facilities. So, one of the reasons I think the Moore Park discussion is so important here in Sydney is that, broadly speaking. If if it goes ahead and the course is cut in half, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, councils around the nation then have something to point to. They can say, well, you know, if that was seen as a sensible way forward for Moore Park, one of the most successful public golf facilities possibly in the world, then it makes sense for us as well. So the stakes are much higher than just Moore Park in terms of Moore Park. The other problem we've got, of course, is that that's, that's a political fight, and that's not our area of expertise. Clovermore is much better at politics than I am and always will be. She's a career politician. And, and I align much more closely with Clovermore on most issues than this one. You know, she's quite green and um, you know, she, her position in the, on, most, on most issues is, is something that I'd be more aligned with. So there's a real, there's a real problem here for – and for those who don't realise, Clovermore actually and the Sydney City Council don't have any power – whatsoever over that land. It's owned by the state government and it's administered by a trust. What they do have, though, is influence. She's been agitating for this for some time. 
Uh, and this is the latest. The Sydney City Council are now going to spend $50,000 on a public consultation process, which is somewhat of a loaded question. If you go into the middle of the city and say to people, would you rather have more park golf course or 10 acres of open land to wander around? Well, what do you think people are going to say? <laughs> I mean, it's not really a... But, but that's a whole other thing. So, so there's a put the, the stakes, the point being the stakes are much higher than just Moore Park. Because if it can happen to Moore Park, you, you can't find a more successful, better representation of everything that public golf could and should be than Moore Park. So if half of that gets taken away, that's a very, 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 uh, dangerous message for golf more broadly. Having said that, um, as I said, I think they're legitimate questions that people are asking. Golf needs to come up with the answers. And I don't see golf – I see too many golfers not engaging that way. The temptation, of course, is to call names and write clever things about how silly the other people are, none of which gets you anywhere and ultimately will be a failed policy if that's what golf chooses right. to do. What we need to do is come up with both the answers to, as to why golf has more to offer than people realise – and then learn how to share space. For me, this is going to be the way forward. Uh, Do you have guys have you, – you mentioned your UK lineage as far as the way the golf culture is there. Do you guys have right to roam like Scotland does? Or No, we don't. Okay. Uh, don't. But there's no reason why you can't introduce forms of it. One of yours, Andy Staples, I don't know whether you're familiar with Andy. With sure, golf community golf. Community golf is a fantastic the, – the bones of what he's laid out with that concept is something that golf should be out campaigning for. If, it, if we make this a political fight and we lose, that's it. Golf loses 100%. That binary proposition of we either keep golf or we don't, ultimately and eventually, golf is going to lose that. Pragmatism tells you that because as the competition for land gets fiercer and fiercer and fiercer, any – uh, minority pursuit that takes up a large bit of land is not going to win that argument in the long run. You might win it this year, next year, 10 years, even 50 years, but eventually the pressure will be too much. If golf can do what it's done in Scotland and ingrain itself into the community by sharing the space, there are still people who don't realise, Dave, that on some days the old course is closed to golf and open to the public. Yes. And that has bred an attitude not of look at those exclusive rich people with all of that beautiful space behind the fence, but okay, so you know, we can wander across there. Yeah, I've been look at my life. Have picnics on the old course. Our golf course. Our golf course. That's exactly right. There's, there's So golf needs to make itself part of the community, and we've done a very poor job of that historically in Australia, and I suspect America as well. There are also parts of the UK. There's lots of clubs in the UK that do a very poor job of it as well. But in a place like, well, you've been to Scotland. Most of the courses are in the towns. Most of them don't have fences. There is the right to roam, as you say. And the golf course is not some mysterious place as you grow up in that town. It's just part of the town. It's like crossing the main street, the high street, the golf course, the beach. All of those places are, are readily accessible. We haven't done that in many other places. So that idea, that, that Andy Staples idea of sharing that space, making other activities, making golf a part of something bigger, to me, in the long term, is what actually it guarantees that golf can survive. My great fear isn't that more park closes and then there's one less place to play. My great fear is that ultimately, if public golf disappears or mostly disappears, then pretty much 
well, for most people, the opportunity to try golf and decide whether they want to go on to become golfers and all of the things that can give you if you're wired that way, like you are and like I am, that opportunity is taken away. And that's kind of unfair and uncool. Now, I'm, I'm happy with the notion that you start your golf playing public golf, you get hooked on it, that's great, and you aspire to and golf and join a private golf club. There's nothing wrong with that. But if that first step is removed, then the rest of that pyramid eventually will collapse. Yeah, you, you don't have – that kinetic chain all of a sudden doesn't exist. Yeah. Look, well, it's a bit evangelical, but people deserve the opportunity to decide whether they do or don't like golf. Some people who try the game are staggered at how much they immediately fall in love with it. Others try it and are staggered at how much they immediately despise it and everything about it. But everyone should have the opportunity, and I think there is a there's a public responsibility there somewhere well, to make sure that everyone has that opportunity. There is, and now I'm going to take issue, and I, and I want to help. I want you to help me think through this. I want to take issue with what you said that if it becomes political, we lose. Mm-hmm. Because the the rules of economics and of self-interest say that, yes, we would like it if every individual golfer was a good citizen and a good person and spread the gospel of golf's benefits. People have exactly. lives and they're busy. Some people, a lot of golfers are grumpy. Um, you know, they're older and they're a little bit, some of us are kooky. So, yeah. you know. I, what what does a public golf advocate look like? And I'll tell you who it's who, what it doesn't look like and who it's not going to be. It's not going to be the USGA and RNA. I just saw who the new nominees were to the USGA board. They, they are corporate titans that wouldn't know 99% of public golf courses what that culture is like if it walked up and punched them in the face. Mm-hmm. It's Which not going to be – Public it, golf there's anything like public golf here. That's a chance. It, it's, it's like <laughs> green grass on a southwest flight is what that is. It's not going to be the PGA Tour. Okay, they're they're a business. They're a membership entity. Uh, they've got their own charity. They put their you know they very famously are a, a charity organization and pump X that's percent. All, that's all they are, Dave. That's right. All they, that's why they exist. Yes. Just to give and give and give. It's not going to be the equipment uh, oligarchy. They're they're just running it, businesses now. They have enough, it should be. It well, should be. We're going to, I'm going to come back to that. Yeah, because it, it it staggers me that the big winners out of any golf boom are the big manufacturing companies. Yeah, much more so than the green never, grass guys. They're never at the forefront of promoting the game beyond beyond golf. Can I tell you as a starting point, my my great. Uh, this is, this is probably a little less about public health, but it's tied in in some way. My, my theory for how the distance issue can be solved is to change the rules, the equipment rules, to bifurcate the game, which we know that will make the manufacturers unhappy. But, but in order to make sure they don't sue, or not to make sure, but you come to an agreement with them that the governing bodies provide some funding to make up to compensate for the losses, whether you agree they will have or not, but that it is incumbent upon the manufacturers to set aside a certain portion of their budget to promote the game beyond just golf, to actually grow the pie. At the moment, in a business sense, the big four or five fight over a pie that is shrinking. 
and that's all they do. If you make a bigger pie, rising tides lift all boats. Now, they won't do that unless there's some compelling reason to. And I think that that changing the specifications of equipment and bifurcating the game in that way could be a road towards that. It'll be more complex than that, but laid out simply, you compensate them, but in return, there is some sort of a fund which everyone contributes to, and it's somebody's responsibility to market the game beyond the bounds of the game. Back to what does public golf advocacy look like? I, I've got a theory. Hear me out on yes. this. Who, who would be most interested in doing this? PGA of America. They are the business of golf, but they're also tasked – they're the grow the game folks. Well, they're, okay. the, they're, the, they're the public face, aren't they? They're the they're teachers. The yeah, yeah. They're, they're your pro shop guy. And in public golf, they, they have a role, okay? Somebody's got to run the pro shop. Somebody's got to give lessons to the kids mm-hmm. or, or the beginners, not even just kids, beginners. Run clinics, do whatnot. They're, yeah, they are who the public sees and associates with golf. And as a rule, they are fantastic, dedicated people who are legitimately passionate about the game. They are, but they don't – most of them – They're overworked. Yeah, <laughs> they don't have time to market themselves. No, that's true. Yeah. Or much less market the game. The you know, does their – but does their trade association, does the PGA of America? I think they do. Do the architects, does the ASGCA? I mean, it's their business. If they're going – if they want places to work with, if they don't want to become – people designing horse carriages if they want a big future in the game and not just catering to you know fight it you're talking about a bigger pie mm-hmm. public golf goes away well then that's a whole industry that's fighting over all the blue blood clubs and all the renovation work and you know you can maybe lump the the superintendents and the greenkeepers in with them people that have a vested interest in the green grass side of the game that aren't now, those are trade associations, for lack of a better. The PGA of America gets funding from the Ryder Cup. Okay, that's their big money. And the, the PGA Championship to a lesser extent. But is there – could there be collabor- collaboration there to dedicate – I think golf needs a lobbyist. Okay, I it, could, could not agree more. And I'm trying to come up with what that looks like. I, I've got three things that I think a golf advocate would need to do, whether it be a body or whether it be just a small office of dedicated people. Who can prevent golf getting to the Moore Park point? Okay? Because it, by the time the council puts that on the agenda, it's too late. Oh, you're right. Absolutely. So it, you've need, got, it needs to be a proactive association. Yes, there has to be yet. a marketing – there has to – advocacy – this comes back to my private life. I'm a, I serve at the Realtor Board. I'm in the Government Affairs. I'm the chairman of the Government Affairs Committee. Second time around for that. We have we are there's a proactive part and there's a reactionary part. Who can prevent more park from getting on the council agenda? Who can be a who can be a rapid a a resource in rapid response? Uh, you know, Joe Golfer sees that. Uh, the city's thinking about closing down the course. What do I do about it other than gripe to my council person? Okay, maybe the pro, you know, there's this advocate that the the, the local pro, now that might be a sticky political situation because he works for the city, and if the city wants to close it, okay, I get that. That that man or woman is in a tight spot, but the, maybe they can elbow their buddy. Hey, why don't you call? And- oh, so, somebody in the PGA. It, it's interesting. I, I, I see where you're going with that. 
it maybe it is different in Australia, although what you outlined is right. Most of the people who populate the administrative body here tend to be members of uh, private clubs and the best clubs, you know, as we call them, the best clubs, right. the, the ritzy clubs. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm not suggesting that there's anything wrong with that, but you're right. For a lot of those people, public golf hasn't necessarily been a part of their uh, golf experience, or certainly not a large part for many of them. And I do think there's something important about that. It, it is different. We've all been to fancy clubs, and they're different to the sorts of public golf and lower-tier golf that we play. They're different in all ways. In Australia, I've always felt it should be the role of Golf Australia to do that. And I think, quite simply, they should have an employee who's, or, or one in each state whose job it is to be on the road and on the phone contacting councils that have public golf courses, just getting to, hey, we're from Golf Australia. Explain to to my listeners who Golf Australia is. Golf Australia is the USGA. It's the equivalent of the USGA here in Australia. They don't do any of the rules or anything. We we play by the RNA rules, but they administer the handicap system and, you know, a couple of elite programs and whatnot. But Golf Australia are effectively the USGA here in Australia. So if they had someone proactively in each state doing that, and selling the benefits of golf. I mean, it could be as simple as a PowerPoint presentation to say, hey, you guys, you're probably not in the golf business. Let's explain to you why it's such a good thing to be in, why it can be good for the community. And if they could then offer something beyond that of, if you're interested in improving your golf course, be it the operations side, the architectural side, the maintenance side, we can offer you some assistance with that, some advice and some counselling. If we did that... I don't think that's going to have an impact on Moore Park, which already is like a successful private club. They have the resources for the machinery and the course is good, it's maintained well and all of those things. They don't need that kind of help. But certainly at that council level, there might be a better understanding of the positive impacts of golf in all facets, not just the financial, which is one of the things I think that golf has to make as its case. A well-run golf facility will make money. It doesn't need to be a loser. Run it well. It will make money. Do you have, and you'll have to forgive my ignorance, do you have state-level associations there, like a, a New South Wales Golf Association or? Ish. It, okay. We always have had a, a, a well, we've always had the, the three-tiered structure. We love three-tiered structures here in Australia. You've got to be over-governed. It's absolutely crucial. So you could have a local council, potentially a district uh, situation, which is what we've got with golf. Then you've got the state body, and then you've got the national body. Until a few years ago, there's this fantastic idea called One Golf, and the idea was that all of the state associations would band together and form one representative body. And the people who in charge of golf Australia pushed ahead with that, despite the fact that neither Western Australia or New South Wales want to be a part of it. <laughs> so One Golf in Australia is actually three golfs. New South Wales is the biggest state with the most money, and at its core, they felt like they have the most to lose. You, you have this in you know, sure. this federalised system is what you have. Right. Big states feel that they contribute the most. California is the fifth biggest economy in the world. Why don't they get the you know Why do they only get the same number of votes as Kentucky and all of those sorts of arguments? There's merits. So, so golf has it. So we have one golf, which is actually three golfs. So that's a bit of a mess. Uh, but in terms of the advocacy, I think it's that, to me, it's that national body in Australia that should take the role. I appreciate what you're saying about the USGA. And, of course, America is just geographically is such a much bigger place. The PGA in Australia is a far less 
resourced organization than in the States. And I'm not sure they would be in a position to take on the lead role. Though I do accept what you say. I think in, in America, I, I like the direction of what you're talking about there. Because you're right, as our good friend Mike Clayton likes to say, in a two-horse race, always back self-interest. Yes. Because <laughs> it's guaranteed to win every time. So use that, and you're right. It is absolutely in the PGA member's interest. It may not be in the PGA organization's interests, but it's certainly in the interest of the PGA member. Right. Because when yeah. people stop playing golf, the very first people that suffer are those at the, the coal face, and that's the PGA professional. So perhaps it's different it's different people in, in different in different parts of the world. Yeah. Somebody's got to do it is the point. Somebody needs to do it. That's the point. Because yeah, as you say, well in Brisbane, which is probably the third biggest city on the not probably it is the third biggest city. It's the capital of Queensland. There's three states on the eastern seaboard of mm-hmm. Australia. There's Victoria, which is Melbourne, New South Wales, which is Sydney, and Queensland, which is uh, Brisbane, which is Queensland. They had a public golf course right in the middle of the city called Victoria Park. And it'll be closed next year and become a park. We saw some sketches this week of kids frolicking around on swings and this was the great vision for what the golf course in the middle of the city will be instead, then there'll be no, there will be simply no golf presence at all. That's a bad outcome for golf. So it makes it desert. The best outcome is if the golf remains. The next best outcome is if the golf remains in some form. Well, you had the worst possible outcome there, as golf has just disappeared from Victoria Park in Brisbane. It's just gone. I think there's a putt-putt and maybe a driving range. But that's not golf. So that, that's what you need to stop. That's what I think. We need to stop. Yes, and, and I think that the proactive part that be, would be the role of the advocate to, you know, just hearing you talk through this with me, you know, I, I'm wondering has anybody from my state association ever given a in the last 20 years a presentation to the state legislature or to the state, you know, the where they decide the budget for the state parks and rec commission? Has anybody gone in and given a PowerPoint or given a speech? Pro golf has done an Andy Staples. If you talk to Andy, which we did on the IC Golf podcast eight yes. months ago, one of the first things he does, he gets called and people say, right, we're thinking about closing the golf course. And he doesn't shy away from that. This is a mistake I think that golf automatically makes. He says, okay, let's do the cost-benefit analysis. It may be that, in fact, the most sensible thing you can do is close this golf facility. That might be the most important – that might be the best way forward. But let's really break it down and decide if that's what you want to do. And if you decide that it's really not what you want to do, well, now we can talk about ways of rebuilding the facility so that it's better and doesn't get to this point again. Yeah. And I really like that about Andy. There's too much assumption on the part of golfers that golf has a right to exist. It has an entitlement to exist, and it doesn't. Uh, and, And Andy really does... He confronts that straight up, and, and golf needs to confront that straight up. Oh, I blame him for some, some of my most fantastical ideas. There's a, a course, a public course here that I want to close and hire to turn. It's an 18-hole, I think, a little bit of an, a terrible golf course. You could find nine good holes and put a driving range there, and it's in a very densely populated area with a lot of young people in a lower-income area. I've, I've been to the first tee of San Diego. It's in an awful neighborhood. It is a shining light. I went down. I had a 45-minute drive from where we were staying on vacation to get down there, and I went and saw it. And what I saw were happy faces. I saw success. 
I saw kids lining up to get into the place. Couldn't believe it. Hitting off AstroTurf tees. Had you know, very small greens. Is a pitch and putt. I played it. Uh, you know, I made the point to play. It was during the British Open weekend. I made a point to not hit the not hit the ball in the air the second nine to play it kind of link style. <laughs> I scored two shots better. Yeah, um, there you go. Listening that for all of us. But it was, yeah. Andy has his honesty and, and kind of he deals in reality, which is what you're saying. Very much so. Which is very. And he has answers for all of the questions. Any, and legitimate answers, uh, and I like that. Because and the other thing you've got in America, of course, is Winter Park. That's which, that's my third leg. Whose whose job can it be to suggest the Winter Park model? Well, I think it comes back to the advocate. What you had there at Winter Park, my understanding, was a very sort of uh, lucky, perfect storm. You had some people who had an understanding of golf within the council, who saw the vision that was presented by. Keith Reb and Riley Johns uh, and the potential of what they could do and then you had the trust of others to go along and say well let's give it a try rather than just close the place and for people that Not don't sure know that Winter Park was a is a nine hole golf course Winter Park is a now this is the catch Winter Park is a very small relatively affluent suburb of Orlando of a town, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It is not. It is not dealing with a big council from Orlando or Chicago or so the municipal sort of places that we're talking about in many cases. Yes, absolutely, and that that's probably crucial as well. Um, but look, that again, you mentioned shining light with San Diego. To me, that's the shining light. The first council in Australia that builds Winter Park, that does a Winter Park with its fail, otherwise failing golf facility will be seen and hailed eventually as a leader. The model at Winter Park, for those who don't know, is it's cheap, it's walkable, it's wide, there's some architectural things about it, which is all very fantastic. But what it actually is, more than anything else, from what I can gather at this distance, is it's welcoming. Mm-hmm. And it's welcoming to non-golfers. And that's the first and probably most important step for golf to take. We are our own worst enemy in so many ways, golf, us as an amorphous mass. We're just not welcoming enough. And that, that, to me, is probably the most important lesson from Winter Park. There are, you know, concepts and general principles in play at Winter Park which could be transferred around the place. Every facility is its own unique uh, project, obviously. But there's certainly concepts and broad broad sort of uh, concepts from Winter Park that you could apply elsewhere. Somebody's got to advocate for it, though, and we come back to this. Somebody's got to advocate, and who should that be? I'm not sure I've got an answer for you. I do like your PGA suggestion for America. Will they do it? Would they do it? What would it look like? Oh, I don't think it needs to be that complicated. No, I don't think it needs to be that expensive. No. A, 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 maybe not a perfect analogy, but again, back to my government affairs work. That's basically the political committee of our local real estate board. We have a state counterpart. We have a very powerful national counterpart. And we have a – our board of directors at the state level has a subgroup that is its rapid response team. Bad piece of legislation comes up. We hear a rumor that there's going to be a change in the tax code or something like that. Okay, they're on a meeting that night. They're on a call. They're on Zoom that night uh, trying to figure out the details. Now, granted, they've got – it's usually a professional lobbyist that is feeding them information, okay, that has the, the contacts. Um, but it, it's – you know, broadly, broadly, 
that structure makes some sense. You can see that the PGA already has much of that structure already in place. Right. They Our federalist system, we have local associations, we have state associations, sometimes multiple state associations geographically, and we have not dueling bodies, but parallel bodies in the, the USGA, PGA of America. Um, again, I think if it were... If there were a successful blueprint, I think you could probably go to the big manufa- equipment manufacturers and say, "You got to look. We're we're not asking for charity. We're asking that you invest in your self-interest." Yeah, exactly. Um, and you, you hire some you slick people lobbyists. to do that. Yeah, you don't need lobbyists with the PJ model because you've actually got the inside oil coming from those because they're at the coalface. They know when the municipal course that they work at is is about to be under threat. They know as well as anybody. It, it doesn't come as a surprise to them uh, when these things happen. So, look, yeah, there's there's a lot to recommend that as a model for America. As I said, I just I don't know about working in Australia, but I, look, I think broadly, if, if golfers start to accept or think about, look, a lot of golfers don't. For a lot of people, golf, Dave, is just something they do. Right. They take the game what they want, and they don't care if more park closes or if another golf course opens, you know, they'll consume whatever golf is available to them in whatever way it makes sense for them to do. But for the golfers who are more invested in the game, and there are a lot of us, more than in other sports, I feel, there's something about golf where people who are really passionate about it are passionate about it at a level that's rare to find in other sports. And I think that's got to do with the participation part of it. It does. As opposed to just it just being professional entertainment. But those golfers who are like that, who are wired that way, like you and me, and there's plenty of them, if we all take a bit of an interest and we all do our little bit as well, we can help to change the image of golf too. We all know non-golfers. What we shouldn't be doing is boring them with details of our most recent golf trip, which is always the temptation. But perhaps inviting – it'd be interesting – if you've got five non-golf friends, just ask them for a one-word response when you mention the word golf. What is it that they think of? And I'll tell you, the, the answer will either be boring, will be one. It'll be a popular choice amongst them. Oh, it's boring. Um, it's hard. Elite, hard. Um, weird. You know, <laughs> take it. Or they'll say tiger. That's yeah. kind of how that golf thing will break down. We can help to sort of change that, I think without necessarily browbeating people when we'd be a part of that. One of my great ideas, which you're free to run with if you like, I have this idea for growing participation in the game, not growing the game, for helping to grow participation. And it's, it's just bring a friend to golf day. If every club did this once a year, bring a non-golf friend to golf. You know, that's it. And we'll let them play for free. They can share your clubs and you play a scramble or Ambrose format, as we call it here. And for every 10 people who try the game, we know two will want to take it up. So you've got to introduce the 10 people. You know, <laughs> they might not be the exact numbers, but you see my point. The more people you let have a go at it, the more people you'll uncover who are prone to liking it. And we just don't do enough of that in golf. We're far more the opposite way of stay off our course, stay out of our property. <laughs> right. You're not welcome here. If you want to have any part of this, you've got to pay a membership fee. It's madness. It's mad. You can do all that to people once they've hooked on golf. We'll, we'll happily bow to all of that once we're hooked on the game. But you've got to get people hooked on the game. There's only one way to do it, and that's give them access to it. And if you take away public golf, you take away that access. And you can, it doesn't take a genius to figure out that pyramids have to have a big base. And those up at the pointy end at the top need to make sure the base stays solid. Otherwise, they're in trouble.
So, yeah, I don't know that we've solved anything. I think we've identified some of the issues, not that any of them were secret. I, I wasn't coming to you for the answers. Uh, it's, a very I, good, I, it's a very good policy. Uh, yes. broadly speaking, Dave. Don't come to me for answers. I came to you for the conversation, so I can so we can whittle we can start whittling it down. Um, on your side of the earth, is there anything like a golf? I don't know what Japan's structure is. If it's more more exclusive over there than than even here. Oh, the pools in Japan, Dave. You see those golf clubs that come out of Japan? All the big manufacturers make special clubs for Japan that are not within the specs that the rest of us play. The game there is, I don't pretend to be intimately familiar with it, but it's very different <laughs> to the way you and I think about golf. It's a very different thing. Okay. Uh, but they love the game. No, yeah. no question about that. It's a very popular game in Japan, and obviously we know Korea. Uh, it's very popular in South Korea. Um, look, there's, look, it's a little bit like the English language, isn't it? You and I both speak English, but if you wanted to, you could drop into an American slang that I wouldn't be able to understand, and I could do the same with Australian. But we do both still speak English. I think our golf is not dissimilar. We have different structures. But at the root of it all, it, it's golf that that kind of binds it all together. It's that, you know, if I say to you, you know that shot, that one shot you hit that comes out of the middle? Every golfer identifies that with immediately. They, they, they feel that again. It's like, yes, that's what you, that's what it's about. That's what Tiger Woods has spent his life chasing. Mm -hmm. And he's experienced it many more times than you and I. And for him, it's at a different level. He wants to feel that at the most crucial moment under the most intense pressure on the biggest stage with the whole world watching. I don't want any of that. That's madness. <laughs> but it's essentially the same thing that he's chasing. You know, that contact between club and ball and all of the decision-making that's gone into it before. And it all, it's all correct. And when it comes down after that, you know, a late of 10 seconds of it in being in the air that comes down where you wanted it to be there's nothing like that it's what drives all of this very so. true I can scarcely thank Rod enough for his time for this episode for being my leadoff hitter for this symposium of conversations there will be periodically additional episodes that explore some of the ideas that have and haven't worked to keep public golf in communities. So expect more discussions like this in the upcoming episodes, sprinkled around more Americans and Pinehurst shenanigans, and more takes from the Stonecrest Golf Course series, amongst other episodes. Hey, thanks for stopping by for this episode of the Blind Shots podcast. Subscribe to the show if you haven't already. Tell a friend about it. Head over to iTunes to leave a review and a rating. Every time someone leaves a rating for the show, an elf earns another hour of vacation time in January. I sincerely hope you liked what you heard here. If you didn't like what you heard, sorry about that. I can't do anything about it now. You won't get that time back, but I promise I will try to do better next time. And I hope you will join me again next time here on the Blind Shots Podcast. That you're being safe and smart and keeping sane out there. 2020 is almost over. So stick with your training regimen, do decide to go for it, and take dead aim. Ah, F word. The F word. Fun. <laughs> <laughs>